I'm new to the Enneagram, I'm going to say a few words about what it is and its history. The Enneagram is this nine-pointed diagram, a circle divided into nine points. Ennea means nine in, <clears throat> in Latin. And nobody knows for sure where the, this particular symbol came from. What we do know is that it first surfaced in a somewhat public way in the work of the Armenian mystic Gurdjieff at the turn of the century. And Gurdjieff used this symbol to plot any number of natural processes like the planets, the organization of the planets, the days of the week, um, how something moves in a process from beginning to completion. He plotted that using this particular diagram. And if you're interested in the way that the Gurdjieffians work with it. He also used it in terms of uh, the octaves of the musical scale. Um, if you're interested in pursuing that, there's a little bit on that use of the Enneagram, that approach to the Enneagram in Auspensky's book, In Search of the Miraculous, and uh, J.G. Bennett's book, Enneagram Studies, both of whom were primary disciples of Gurdjieff. The Enneagram surfaced again in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, in the work of a Bolivian mystic, Oscar Ichazo. And um, it's not clear where Oscar got the Enneagram from. Uh, initially, um, as I heard the story by his um, at the time, chief disciple, Claudio Naranjo. He learned it in the same mystery schools in Afghanistan that uh, Gurdjieff is reputed to have learned the Enneagram in also. And Oscar used the Enneagram in a very different way. He used it to look at ego structure. And um, I learned it, as I said, from Claudio Naranjo, who's the one responsible, really, he's the main source for most of the information that's been disseminated about the Enneagram in the, uh, mostly in the 80s, 90s. Um, he, he studied with Ichazo, and Claudio himself is a psychiatrist. He was trained as a psychiatrist in Chile. And he was one of the pioneers of the uh, consciousness movement. He worked with Fritz Perls. He worked with the Sufi teacher Idris Shah. And he was a real pioneer, probably the pioneer, in integrating psychology with spirituality, bringing the psychological understanding of the 20th century into the whole realm of spirituality. 
And um, the group that I was part of that began in 1970 was the first of his Sat groups, standing for Seekers After Truth. And uh, Claudio continues to teach. He's, he's based primarily in um, Spain. He teaches Sat groups in Spain. And um, Hamid Ali, the founder of the Diamond Approach, who writes under the name of A.H. Almas, was also, he and his wife were both part of that first group. So we go back a long way with the Enneagram. And for us, it was implicit in our spiritual work. It was the main psychological tool that Claudio used to help us work with and work through our personality structure. And that was the, the context in which we learned it. It's become popularized and um, there are many, many books, dozens of books on the Enneagram that um, use it primarily as a typology of personality. And that use of it is really limited to the psychological domain. It's, as I understand it, and as I was trained in the understanding of the Enneagram, it's a map to help us go beyond our psychology. It's a very interesting map of our psychology, of how our personality structure ticks. It's a very accurate map, and that's why it's become so popular, because it has so much truth to it. And it's also a map that helps us move beyond the personality. To me, it's not enough simply to understand how I work, how other people work, how our structures operate. But unless that understanding helps us open into something beyond structure, it's simply something that's really interesting and useful, very useful psychologically. Some of you, I heard people talking as you were coming in, many of you I know are psychotherapists. It's a very, very helpful tool psychotherapeutically. And there's a deeper dimension to it as well. Uh, let's see, what else do I want to say by way of introduction? Um, there are many, many different typologies. Eugene touched on the uh, kind of basic Buddhist um, typology. I know that in um, Vajrayana Buddhism there are typologies by families of temperament types. There are the Jungian types. There's our astrological types. And the question often arises from people that I've taught, how do these all fit together? I think that they're all coming from their own particular logos, their own particular slant or view 
on reality, all of which are accurate from that particular angle. But they're different. They're different views of reality. So the perspective out of which the Enneagram comes is a particular stream of knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. Just as each of the other typologies comes from originally an experiential stream of knowledge about how we operate. So in my view, that's a very long way of saying that in my view, they're all accurate and they all tell us different things about ourselves. So, let's see. Um, We've passed out to you three diagrams. And you'll find that they're the same diagrams um, with some slight alterations from um, my first book on the Enneagram. Um, the, they're numbered by how they appear, I believe, in that first book. So the, I think they start at four or something like that. So that's not exactly accurate to what we're doing. If you don't have them, they're in the back of the room. Um, you'll find that there's one figure right side up and one figure upside down. The right side up figure... <laughs> is, I'll wait a minute until people get the diagrams. (coughs) While we're waiting, are there any questions about what I've just said that anyone has? Yes. This is actually uh, something I was mentioning earlier. What is the Ridwan school? Okay. Okay, I'll I'll repeat it. Uh, The question was, what is the Ridwan school? The Ridwan school is the home of the Diamond Approach, and the Diamond Approach. Do you know what the Diamond Approach is? The Diamond Approach is a contemporary spiritual path that was founded by A.H. Almas. Hamid Ali is his real name. He writes under the name of Almas. And it's a teaching that um, came through Hamid uh, in the years, began coming through in the years following the end of our first Sat group with Claudio. Um, It's a form of spiritual work that has its own particular logos, its own um, view of reality, and its aim is to help us experience all of the dimensions of who and what we are. Um, it's It's a form of spiritual work that is for people living life in the world. It's not a monastic um, form of spirituality. And we do a lot of meditation, we do a lot of um, interpersonal exercises, which we're going to do today. And uh, what else should I say? Inquiry. Inquiry, yes, thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Um, the, there are two main practices in the diamond approach. The first is becoming present to your experience. In other words, arriving, fully arriving in your body, in your emotions, and in your mind. Becoming present to all of it. And inquiring into what you find. Exploring experientially, in other words, what's there. So we don't, in, in the diamond approach, we don't attempt to transcend or to pull away from our experience. We actually move through it. It's, in that sense, a tantric path. It's a path of moving through the personality structure. Hamid had a very brilliant understanding in the early years, which is that the traditional approach to the ego or the personality of being an obstacle, something that we need to overcome, that we need to kill, that we need to get rid of, is actually the main barrier to working through it. And as we see it in the Diamond Approach, the, techno the, the psychological technology of the last century has made it possible to actually understand it and open it up in such a way that the personality, its structure itself, can become transparent and we can move through it instead of jumping over it. So that's the way that, as those of you who've read my first book will know, um, that's the way that I approach the Enneagram. We use the Enneagram in the Diamond Approach as a subset of our work. It's a tool that we use uh, in order to map the terrain that we're exploring and moving through. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. Do you want to say any more, Eugene? I, w I would just add the one piece that the Diamond Approach has had a, a very big influence on Buddhism in the West and specifically here at Spirit Rock um, that Jack Cornfield has worked with Hamid Ali for over 20 years. Um, uh, I'm a teacher in both traditions. Many of the teachers have studied uh, the Diamond Approach in different groups. And so part of the flavor of the Buddhism that you get in that at Spirit Rock has mm. been influenced very, very much by the Diamond Approach. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Yeah. Are there any more figure fours? Any more figure fours around? <laughs> the which one? Which one is it? Okay, the the picture of the enneotypes. Are there any more of those lying around anywhere? In the back. Okay. Yes. What, uh, what was the mystery school in Afghanistan? It's a mystery. The question was, the question was what, what is the mystery school in Afghanistan? It's, it's literally a mystery. The, the, the tradition is that in these ancient schools, I think in the, in the Sufi world as well as in the um, Buddhist worlds, that you had to really struggle to become a student. You had to 
overcome many, many obstacles. You know, there are these great Zen stories about people who came to monasteries to study with a Zen master, and he would say, cut off your arm if you're really serious about it. You know, and people would, apparently. So, the... <laughs> Not like that. Thank you. It's also not like that in the diamond approach. Um, So these schools were secret schools, and you had to really struggle to find them. So the the uh, I I think that Guruji said that the school he studied in was called called the Sarmun Brotherhood but nobody has ever been able to find any traces of it. Any other questions? Yeah. Maybe we'll discuss this, but uh, what's the significance of the shape and how has it been useful in other, you said Gurdjieff used it to describe many types of things. So what's the shape about? Um, What's the shape about? That's actually a... um, a long question that I think is going to be a little bit beyond our, our scope today. But you can read about it in the two books that I mentioned. And um, also, um, I have a new book that's coming out in May. And in the introduction, I talk about the shape itself. One of the things that you'll notice about the um, figure is that there's a triangle and then there are figures along the edge. And being an old Babylon 5, I don't know if any of you are Babylon 5 fans, but <laughs> anyone? No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Few of you know what I'm talking about. I call the other figure the points along the rim. Okay. So, and they have a particular numeric significance that has to do with the law of three and the law of seven. <coughs> Um, and an, another man by the name of Michael Schneider has talked about, he's got a great book on mathematical um, archetypes, and you can read there about the laws of three and seven. It's a little bit beyond what we're going to have time to get into today. Good question, though. Okay, any questions about what I've said? Or is there anything more anyone wants to ask? Okay, so Gurdjieff said that the Enneagram is a map of universal principles and that in it we can understand everything he believed. The Enneagram and what it represents has layers and layers and layers of meaning and of understanding. So we can talk about it in terms of the musical scale, or we can talk about it in terms of the nine personality types the fixations that Eugene was referring to. The way that I learned the Enneagram, in the way I learned the Enneagram, we were taught that there are, that humanity is divided into nine ego structures. 
nine types of ego structure, more accurately. And each of these nine types has particular mindset, which is the fixations. You'll, you'll find what I'm talking about in the diagram with the figure upside down. And the symbolism of the upside-downness is exactly that of the tarot card of the hanged man, where reality is seen upside-down. So it's another way of describing the world as viewed through delusion. So the fixations are nine different mindsets, nine different deluded views or distorted views of how reality is. And reality meaning everything, how we see the entire universe and also how we experience ourselves. The nine fixations or fixed deluded mindsets result from This is going to be a lot of information. You don't have to remember it, and you don't even have to understand it. But I I just want to go over it very briefly so that you understand a little bit about how the Enneagram operates. The nine different distorted, skewed views of reality that are the root of each of the Enneotypes arise in response to the loss of a view of reality as it is. In other words, the enlightened view of reality, seeing things as they truly are in all of existence, including ourselves. These nine enlightened views of reality are on the other map, the figure up right side up. They're called the holy ideas. So the Enneagram theory goes that we're each born sensitive to one particular holy idea, which means that when we come in, when we incarnate, we each come in with one of those enlightened views. um, Sensitive. Another word for it is precarious. One of those views is kind of like a raw nerve. And the experiences that happen to us in early childhood, in which our personality is formed, are filtered through this sensitive nerve. So that's a very fancy way of saying that the traumas and the difficulties that we encounter in early childhood hit this view and gradually it starts to relax in our consciousness. We start to not see the particular holy idea, not see the the world and ourselves through the vantage point of the holy idea that we're sensitive to. In other words, and and that may sound very complicated if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, Just a very quick example. If you're a one, the holy idea that you're born sensitive to is holy perfection. 
which means that everything, it's the view of reality that everything, including myself, is just right as it is. You know, this flower is just as beautiful as that flower. The loss of this holy idea, the loss of this viewpoint, which is what happens for ones, leads to the belief that one thing is better than another. And I better do everything I can to be better. So the one personality type becomes a perfectionist, trying to become good because they've lost sight of their inherent goodness and just rightness. Okay, do you kind of get, get the sense of what I'm talking about? I'm not going to go into all of the holy ideas. Hamid has done that at great length in his book, Facets of Unity. It's a very, very beautiful explication of the holy ideas. He really expanded the um, kind of rudimentary theory that we were taught back in the old days. So, the loss of the holy ideas leads to these deluded mindsets, which in turn lead to particular emotional fields inside of us, which are called the passions. And you'll find those in the heart center of the diagram. So the passions are... I I think the the best way to think of them is their compulsive reactive states and drives that arise inside of us based on the way that we're seeing reality. So if we happen to be a one and we believe that things are not right as they are, the passion, which is called anger, or resentment in the Enneagram is what Ichazo described as a standing against reality. So there's a compulsive emotional reaction to everything that comes up of, no, this isn't right, and I want to make it right. There's an aggression toward reality. That's what's described by the passion of anger. So each of the passions is a particular reactive state that arises inside of us. And these reactive states drive our behavior. The opposite of the passions are what are called the virtues in the language of the Enneagram. Yes? Indolence means laziness. We'll talk more about that today. So, as we work through our passion, which happens hand in hand with our personality structure, becoming more relaxed, more transparent, so that our view of reality includes more of the, more of how things actually are. As that happens, our 
reactive tendencies also relax, the passions relax, and the virtues become more of what our inner atmosphere feels like and how we relate to reality, the quality of that interaction, the affective feel of that interaction. So the more that a one recognizes that, hey, I'm, I'm fine. Nothing needs to be changed here. Yes, there are things I could do better. Yes, there are things that can be improved on in the world. That's a big button for ones especially. But there's a rightness underlying everything. As we get more in touch with that, our inner atmosphere becomes more serene. And serenity is the virtue of point one. There's a sense of uncloudedness, which is the literal literal meaning of the word serenity. Unclouded by anger and resentment and criticalness and judgments and pickiness and so on. We become more serene at peace. The three Enneagrams at the bottom of both of these diagrams represent the instincts. In the map of the Enneagram, there are three instincts. There's the self-preservation instinct, obvious, the social instinct, the drive to belong to feel part of the group. Human beings are a very gregarious species. We actually don't survive very well isolated from the group. So one of our fundamental instincts or drives is toward belonging, and that's what's represented by the social instinct. The sexual instinct is the drive toward merging, union, intimate relationship. Friendship has to do with the social instinct. Um, Intimate relationship, partnership, sexual relationship is represented by the sexual instinct. And our... these three drives become distorted the more that we're crystallized in our ego structure. We don't take care of ourselves optimally. We don't perceive what really sustains us. Our relationships with other people are driven by hunger, emptiness, trying to get something, just as our sexual relationships are. From the perspective of the Enneagram, these are the drives functioning through the delusions. And the more our structure relaxes and the more that we see reality as it is, in other words, the more that we wake up, the more that these instincts function naturally. They function basically out of a fullness instead of an emptiness. Instead of an attitude of grasping in each of these life arenas, 
we experience a sense of ease and of what's natural in the sense of um, not natural as in normal, because normal is neurotic, but <laughs> natural in the sense of what's really fundamental, essential to how we can operate in these life arenas, how they can function smoothly in our lives. And that happens. Our lives change, as those of you know who've been practicing for many, many years. Our lives change the more deeply we connect with that which is beyond all structure, that which is not something that comes and goes. So the nine personality types, as you see on the third diagram that we handed out, each have a name. And I'm mostly handing that out to you today just as a reference. Um, I'm not going to go at length into each of the enneotypes today, and just as a matter of language. Um, the, the types are called, sometimes called the fixations, and in recent years Claudio has taken to calling them the enneotypes. Uh, basically, technically, the fixations are the fixed mindsets that are at the root of each of the enneotypes. So the enneotypes encompass all of the um, enneagrams that you see on the map of the enneagram of personality. So that map of the figure upside down all of those Enneagrams together are called the Enneagram of Personality in the language of the Enneagram. It's a little cryptic, the, the way the language is. It, to me, it's a little bit like a code that we need to break through our direct experience. Okay, so any questions about what I've said so far before we change gears? Yes? It sounded as if you were saying that we're born a certain type, and then whatever the particular traumas are of our life, they pull that type out. Um, is that some of the information that I heard about the Enneagram seems to indicate that um, there's a point of view that says that we're our type is created by the particular types of trauma mm -hmm. that we experience? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little Yeah, bit? yeah. So the, the question is, do the traumas in our life create our type, or are we born with our particular type? The theory that I was taught that came down through Ichazo is that we're born sensitive to one holy idea. So, in other words, we filter the vicissitudes of our early childhood through that particular sensitivity. and. There are many people, inc including Claudio, who have written about typical things that happen in the childhoods of a particular type. And I think there's something a little mysterious and magical here, because that's true. These things do happen. But is it because that's 
from a from a Buddhist perspective was that our karma you know is that something that we were born to experience or does the experience in fact shape I mean it does shape what happens to us but where is the source of that really and I think it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg kind of question you know, I, I uh, am of the belief that we do come in born to one, born sensitive to one particular holy idea, which basically translates as we're destined to fall into one type. And how we experience what happened to us in early childhood is also a reflection of that type. We see it through a particular lens. And one of the ways that I've seen that that's probably the most accurate way of understanding things is that if you're born in a family with lots and lots of children, one of the things that you find is that each of them tends to have a very different picture of your parents. You know, and very different kinds of experiences with them. And how do you explain that? These parents did not dramatically change in one or two years. You know? So we're seeing them through a particular lens, with a particular sensitivity. I'm not sure that's the whole story, but I think it's an accurate part of the story. Yeah. You talk about uh, being born with a sensitivity to one holy idea. It, it, that one idea, it, is it possible to, in fact, have resonance with the, another or other holy ideas? Mm -hmm. Simultaneously? Um, okay, the question was, is it possible to be born sensitive to more than one holy idea? The, the holy ideas are universal principles. As I said, the Enneagram is a multidimensional symbol. And so what it represents is multidimensional. I, I like to envision it kind of like those Russian babushka dolls. You know, things are nested inside of each other. And so, on the one hand, what each of the holy ideas represents are generic. Each of us has the potentiality of experiencing all of those enlightened perspectives of reality. One of them is the one that is the most problematic for us. That's the theory I was taught. It's what I've seen, and it's what I believe. Um, in recent years, I've heard that Ichazo has um, developed or put out the theory that we have a secondary enneotype. I really don't know much about it. I think it's possible. One of the things that I'm seeing in my colleagues and people that I've been uh, traveling the road of the diamond approach with for 25 years now is that the more that we become who we really are, in other words, the more free we become of our structure, the more that our personalities are changing. You know, it's not just that our personalities are becoming more transparent, but we're actually becoming different kind of people. So there may be truth to that. That may be what Ichazo is pointing to. And I know nothing more about it than what I've just said. Yeah. Is that what sometimes is referred to as the wing type? 
No, no. That's the question was: Is that what is what is that what's referred to as our wing type? The answer is no. Yes. Is the holy idea a problem area, or is it the, the beacon that we strive towards? The question was: Is the holy idea a problem area, or the beacon that we we strive toward? Um, There's a multidimensional answer to that question. Each of the types can be seen as a distortion of the holy idea. So in our whole personality type, we're attempting to embody the lost holy idea. Um, In terms of inner work, I think that the best use of the holy ideas is as a conceptual frame that can help us orient our inner work. Not something to strive toward, but something to know that it's the possibility. And if we know what our holy idea, if we know what our enneotype is, we know what the view of reality is that we are not including in our moment-to-moment experience. And that can be very, very helpful. And we'll touch on that implicitly today as we work. I think probably before I get into any other questions, I'd, I'd like to get to the heart of what I'd like to explore this morning, have you all explore. And then uh, we'll have ample time for questions later, okay? Unless it's anything really pressing right now. Meaning that something you're not understanding about what I've been saying, what we've been talking about. Okay. So, what I'd like to do this morning is to explore the Enneagram from our direct experience. As I've said, we can understand even our enneotype, or all of the enneotypes, everything represented by each of the nine points, on many, many different levels. And I thought the most interesting thing that we could do today is to explore the Enneagram from our direct and immediate moment-to-moment experience, which I think shows up extremely dramatically when we attempt to meditate. (laughs) Those of you in particular who have sat long retreats, a week-long retreat, two-month retreat, get in that somewhat tacky phrase, an up-close-and-personal view that's painfully obvious about the repetitive patterns in your moment-to-moment experience. And, whoops, you changing? Oh, okay. That's the perspective I'd like to take this morning in getting into feeling into what is represented at each of these nine points. 
the Enneagram represents issues. The Enneagram personality represents issues, hindrances, in the Buddhist language, obstacles that we encounter. It's kind of going in and out for some reason. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, obstacles that we encounter in our practice our practice of life, our practice of being a human being, which we see intimately when we sit. So the Enneagram maps out universal issues and obstacles that we all encounter. And it also maps ones that are stronger for each of us. So everything that the Enneagram represents, we all share. And everything I'm going to be talking about today are things that we all share. We couldn't understand each other as well as we do. Sometimes we feel like we don't understand each other very well at all. But if we understand the map of the Enneagram, it's generally something that we can really feel into and get if it's explained clearly enough to us. So that tells us that what the Enneagram is mapping are universals in human experience, right? Things that we all share, as well as things that are most highlighted for each of us. So the qualities and the characteristics and the issues that are particular to our own Enneatype are going to be the strongest for us but we share all of the others. So as you listen to what I'm going to talk about for the next while, I'd like you to listen from the perspective of, no, this does not, no, this doesn't apply to me because that's not my type, but yes, this too is part of my experience. And let me feel how and to what degree it's part of my experience because I would be, I would wager, let's put it this way, that everything that we're going to talk about today is something that each of you can relate to. So don't close your mind. Let yourself open your mind. And I'm saying this because one of the things I've encountered in the Enneagram community, people who are very familiar with the Enneagram, is that they tend to create new and improved spiritual identities based on this is what I am, this is my type. I spoke to a group once and I said, you are not your type. That is not who you are. And the upset in the room was (laughs) remarkable. You are not your type. It's just a map. I mean, if you really think about it, if humanity is divided into nine patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior, some of the things that are your worst suffering are not really yours. They're a structure. 
They're not you. I mean, they are yours. But they're a structure that theoretically a ninth of humanity shares with you. I don't know of this. Nobody's done the statistics of how humanity boils down into each of the types, you know, how many are in each types. But, you know, basically, if you look at these patterns and you really get, this is one of nine. This can't be who I am. This only describes how you're patterned. And I think really getting that in itself is a huge step toward freedom and liberation. Okay. So I'm going to talk, I'm going to start at the top of the Enneagram, and I'm going to talk about some of the things that we encounter as we directly contact ourselves. And the best way to listen to what I'm going to talk about is not by attempting to collect information, but by listening with your heart and trying to feel what I'm saying. Okay? Trying to feel into the felt sense of the experiences that I'm going to be describing. The top of the Enneagram, Eugene referred to as the anger corner of the Enneagram. That's the way that some uh, Enneagram people talk about it. And I think it's accurate in its own particular orientation. To me, it's, it's more um, precise to speak of this corner of the Enneagram as the outer directed corner, in that each of the types here has their focus outside of themselves. The central point, the point on the, the triangle, is point nine, and point nine represents the principle of turning away from ourselves. <coughs> it's at the top of the Enneagram, so it's kind of like the white light that a prism differentiates e each of the other types into. <coughs> so it is the primary point on the Enneagram. The primary issue that each of us faces in our spiritual journey is the fact that we have gone to sleep on ourselves. We have lost touch or become unconscious to the deeper reality that is our nature whether we call that God, the divine, true nature, 
whatever name we give it, the reality that all of the spiritual traditions are oriented toward helping us access has to one extent or another become lost to our consciousness. And that's where we begin our spiritual journey, each of us. We begin with the recognition that there is something I am not awake to. Enlightenment (coughs) is the opposite of endarkenment. A good image that I think is useful to understand what that language is pointing toward is that if a light bulb were covered with layers and layers of paper, that would be analogous to how our true nature gets layered by our personality structure. And we can no longer perceive it. The light gets diminished. Even through our experience of ourselves, not simply if you're standing outside of that light bulb that's enshrouded, but also our experience of ourselves. So our spiritual journey begins at point nine. It begins with recognizing (coughs) the fact that there is more to us than we are awake to. In our immediate experience, point nine has to do with how we perpetuate that sleep. And we perpetuate it by not paying attention to ourselves, not turning toward our moment-to-moment experience. We see it very dramatically when we sit with our attention wandering. You know, almost every meditation practice is based on, actually all of them, implicitly or explicitly, are based on really showing up to the practice. You know, you can't just go through the form, you can't just sit there, unfortunately, for 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour and have anything make any difference unless you actually show up, unless you're attending to what's happening. So point nine represents our tendency to space out, to go away, driven by not valuing what's happening to us. What's the point? Why bother? There's nothing here worth paying attention to. There's nothing worthwhile in my experience. These are all the variations of what happens at point nine. These might not be self-talk that registers for you, but some of it might be. Why bother? This is too hard. I don't have the energy for it. I don't have the time for it. I'm too busy living my life. That's the outer directedness, central of point nine. If we're truly serious about inner work, what's most important is our inner work and bringing that into our outer life 
rather than our outer life covering over, taking us away from our inner life. Now, I don't say that with judgment, and I think it's very important to hear this without judgment. It is, as I see it, the primary obstacle that each of us faces in our inner work is our tendency to let ourselves be pulled away from attending to our practice, whatever it is, whether it's a mantra practice, whether it's the practice of paying attention to the kath or the hara, the dantian, in our work, whether it's doing the practice of sensing, looking, listening, our work meaning the diamond approach. Okay, so point nine represents this basic inattention to self. All spiritual work is based on the premise that we find reality within ourselves. And that's what makes it different from a religious orientation in which the divine is outside of ourselves, something that we can only approximate or come into relationship with. True spirituality has to do with knowing that divine nature in ourselves. So if we don't show up with ourselves, where are we going to find it? So that's the number one obstacle. Let me see if there are any... Anything else I'm forgetting here? Okay. So one of the one of the ways that this nine-ish tendency shows up is putting everything else first before our practice. You know, when I get the house cleaned up, then I'll sit. You know, or when I have when I have an altar room, then I'll sit. When I have the correct zafu, then I'll sit. So putting the externals first before ourselves. Point one has to do with our tendency to criticize what we find as we turn in toward ourselves as we experience ourselves, as we sit. It's the tendency to have a voice inside that's sitting there with this little monologue going, this kind of um, soundtrack of, oh, come on, pay attention. What's the matter with you? Where did you just go? How come you just fell asleep? Can't you do anything right? You can't even sit for 15 minutes. Look, there's another thought. (laughs) Can't you stop thinking? (laughs) Have you ever tried to stop thinking? (laughs) So it's the perfectionist inside of us, the judge, the inner critic, our superego in Freudian terms, 
that part of our structure, part of our ego structure, that's standing over us. In, in German, the direct translation of superego, or the word that, that uh, Freud used, was the uber-ich, the over-I. So it's the overseer of the I, the one who's sitting up there and being sure that everything is going along perfectly and just right and giving us a really, really rough time, if not. So behind this inner voice is the deep assumption that what's going on with us is not as it should be. That who we are and what we are and how we are lacks perfection, lacks rightness. Now this is a kind of paradoxical thing to get because implicit in working on ourselves is the notion that we're trying to get clearer. At the beginning we might think of it as trying to get better, trying to become better, trying to get fixed. One of the things that we discover as we work on ourselves is that our ultimate cure, the ultimate fixing of ourselves, is realizing that there was nothing to fix in the first place. Making peace with ourselves. Another way that our one-ish tendency shows up is being critical of others. Those of us who are hypersensitive during meditation to someone else moving, making a sound, breathing too loudly, <laughs> disturbing us, taking us away, right? That's all the one-ish tendency. Finding the fault out there, finding the obstacle out there, if only the others sat better, had more presence, <laughs> then my practice could deepen in the way that it's really possible for it to. Point eight. The issues here that we encounter are numerous, and (laughs) the grossest one is that what's all this airy-fairy spiritual stuff anyway? This is all bullshit. I just want to get to lunch, for Christ's sake. Now, when will that damn bell ring so I don't have to keep paying attention to myself? And I can start feeling better. And I can get something yummy. The tendency here is also to use our spiritual experiences as food. 
as a cookie, something yummy, a treat for us to devour. The passion here is lust, and it's that tendency to want to take in. But it's wanting to take in things that are really substantial. You know, so we don't just want some little subtle insight about ourselves here. We want some thunderbolt and lightning, you know, break everything open kind of awareness that's going to radically change us and otherwise forget it. It's not worth it. Also here at point eight, we meet our experience with prejudice, with fixed ideas. The deepest fixed idea is that we are these bodies. When you scratch the surface, the core of our ego structure, at the root of it, is our belief that we are these bodies, that these bodies, when push comes to shove, defines who and what we are. And the pedal really hits the metal when we're facing a life-threatening situation. We see how deeply we're identified with this form, with this body. So, We all, at the beginning, come to our inner work, whatever it is, with the prejudice that, and it's not always conscious, that we are the body. And that anything happening to the body is something wrong, something bad and that our bodily needs are first and foremost. (coughs) Also here we have a fear of encountering anything that we interpret as weakness. And this is not true for all of us, but it's, it's true for many of us, especially if we happen to be an eight. Anything that smacks of weakness, lack of strength, <coughs> vulnerability, um, the sense of being unprotected, undefended, can feel really hard for us to tolerate. And one of the ways that this shows up, I think for almost all of us, is in letting our experience unfold exactly as it does without attempting to control it or dominate it or take charge of it. Almost all of us are afraid of that lack of control over what happens inside of us. 
You've probably had moments when you're on the edge of some experience and you don't know what's going to happen next. And the eightish tendency is to try to muscle in there into your experience and to get strong so that whatever the frightening thing that this unknown holds for us won't get to us. And basically that whole orientation, if you really track it down, is rooted in our identification with the body. It's a fear of annihilation, which is indeed, it's the good news and the bad news, it is what happens as we open to true nature. What gets annihilated, what drops away, is who we take ourselves to be, which can only be a structure in our mind. Okay. Moving along, let's see, let's let's start with the fear types. Um, The types centered around point six, five, six, seven. These are the fear types. And what's highlighted here for each of us is our fear of full engagement with ourselves. Our fear of the contents of our consciousness. Our fear of what might arise. The underlying preconception here is that the world is a dangerous place, but also I'm a dangerous place too, which translates as I am something to be afraid of. If we're six, our tendency is to project what we're afraid of outside of ourselves. The danger is out there. What's scary is out there. Actually, you don't have to be a six to do that. We all tend to do that to greater or lesser degrees. That fear shows up archetypally, universally, when we're very young children in our fear of the dark. Fear of the dark is a projection onto the darkness of things that are threatening to our developing ego structure. And we never fully overcome that fear of darkness until we begin to work on ourselves. It's part and parcel. It's an intimate part of our personality structure. So here at point six, We experience our fear of what we are, our fear of our aggression, our fear of our power, our fear of our instincts, our fear of the animal part of ourselves, our drives. 
We become afraid here of our impulses. In our moment-to-moment experience, as we're sitting or being with ourselves, our fear can show up as a fear of the other shoe dropping. If we're having a positive experience, our anxiety starts to creep in, oh God, when is it going to change? No, I'm in some great state of samadhi now. But, oh God, when I walk out of the meditation room, what's going to happen? So there's an anticipatory quality to our fear. It's not so much... The the fear that's most problematic for us as human beings is not so much the fear we encounter when we're actually in danger, but it's the mindset that's constantly anticipating danger. Oh, where is the trouble going to come from? Where is the danger? Who's going to get me? Who's going to attack me? Where is the threat? And so we have an attitude of inner vigilance. No. I know somebody's going to cough and it's going to scare me. I know it. I just know it. Somebody's going to take my shoes. Somebody might come in and take all the shoes out there and then what will I do? You know, our whole culture lives with insurance policies. You know, we're insured up to the gills, most people in our culture, based on fear of what's going to happen, which is not to say that buying insurance is a bad thing, you know, but just to point out how strong a drive our fear is. So each of the types here in this corner are afraid of a full immersion in self, a complete settling into oneself. The six-ish tendency in particular here is to believe that when we're experiencing positive states, experiences of true nature, that somehow we've been hypnotized or tricked into them, that they happened because of the teacher or the state in the room or somebody did it to us. There's a whole kind of victim mentality here at point six, which translates into our spirituality. So it's very hard for sixes to really get that the glimpses of being that they are having are actually of them, of who they are, rather than coming from some outside authority, some outside agency. Okay, point seven, one of the fear types. Here we find ourselves, when we're being with ourselves, sitting, find ourselves planning and mapping. Oh God, what am I going to do when I finish the sitting? Now I need to go to the store and there's this, that, and the other thing I need to do. And then I'll go, wow, then I'll go over to the 
shop over there and do the oh and then there's that bakery over there yeah it's going to be really great as soon as this meditation is done or we find ourselves sitting and we have an idea of how our practice ought to go you know we've heard a dharma talk we have a sense of what's possible in our experience and we're checking our experience to see if it matches the map or not. Is that what he was talking about? Is that what she was talking about? Let me see. Oh, yeah, very interesting. Well, this piece of it does, but not that piece. And Well, yeah, there's this little element over there, but not that one. And I wonder how this all fits together into one big picture. And maybe the map is completely wrong in the first place. Okay, so that's the seven-ish voice in ourselves. The Buddhists speak of it as monkey mind. It's our mind jumping around from branch to branch, going here and there, but not being present. And that's the key element. There's a touching in at point seven to our direct experience, but only touching in long enough for our mind to take off and expand on what's happening, to build a whole theory around the insight that we just had and to generalize it and maybe it's a scheme that fits all of people everywhere actually and wow the Enneagram is a really great tool for that so that's the story at seven another aspect of it is that great um, spiritual obstacle which is voiced as something like, well, it's all Leela anyway. It's all play anyway. Why bother looking at myself? It's all a great dance. Yes, I see everything that's going on inside myself. And hey, it's a dance. Why sit anyway? And then there are those great Dzogchen practices which say that we're already enlightened. So why sit? I'm going to go have fun. So that's another way that our seven-ish tendency shows up. Because there's a great paradox in spiritual work. We call it work. Which it does feel like it is for a long time. It's the work of getting present. And there's no way around that. You know, it's great to say that we're all enlightened anyway, which is the same thing as saying that we are all true nature. But if we don't do it, if we don't know it, if we're not aware of that, if that understanding is not informing our consciousness in an ongoing way, what difference does it make? It remains a good idea, and a true idea, but only an idea. So those are some of the big obstacles at seven. At five is the tendency to hold on to our experience. Eugene mentioned, what did you mention? Our tendency to... Grasping is either grasping or pushing away. Right, right. Clinging is either grasping or pushing away. That's the principle represented here at point five that 
holding on to our experience, holding on to positive states, trying to hold on to them, holding on to our issues, is part of the grasping that's an obstacle for us. Our tendency also to isolate ourselves, to not let outer experience or inner experience touch us, is another aspect of what's highlighted here at point five. So the tendency to pull away from the immediacy, the juiciness, the vibrancy, the aliveness of our experience is what's represented here at point five. Also, using our minds to scout our inner territory. Trying to deal with our fear of the unknown that I mentioned earlier by letting our minds scout out what's going on with us. Let me see if I can figure out what's happening with me. Let me try to figure out what I'm feeling and then I'll see if it's okay for me to feel it. Once I figure it out and I get that it's safe, then I'll enter into it. We all do that to greater or lesser degrees when we start working on ourselves. So it's the tendency to allay our fear of what we will find by trying to understand what's there what our emotions are, what our thoughts are, what's happening in our bodies. So instead of feeling our bodies directly, we, we take a little bit, little, little bit of sensing, and then we try to figure it out. What's going on here? What do I know about this? Another aspect of point five is collecting our spiritual knowledge and substituting that for direct experience. You know, having a lot of understanding, we might know our Buddhist texts inside out and backwards. But how much time do we actually know directly, immediately, what those texts are referring to? The image corner, uh, which as Eugene said is also referred to as the feeling corner because two of the types here, twos and fours, are some of the most emotionally labile of any of the types. Um, The most emotional, simple language, of any of the types. Dramatic, hysterical, a lot of stuff going on with them usually. Threes, on the other hand, are not that way at all, at least, especially in America. It's a little different in the European cultures. But um, to me, the, the central thread in all three of these types is a tendency to filter one's experience through an image of how it ought to be. So it's a little bit like constantly being on stage. 
How are others seeing me? What is the way I'm coming across? How am I being heard? For all of these three types, that becomes primary. For threes in particular, it's instant. There's an instant morphing, shape-shifting into what a three believes others want to see. And we all do that. We all become, in one way or another, what it is that we believe is the ideal in our particular culture or subculture. So if we're, for instance, a member of the Spirit Rock community, um, well, actually, I don't know what the, the ego ideals are here very much, but... Yeah, right, 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 right. But, you know, in most spiritual schools, being compassionate, being open, being uh, giving, generous, being still, you know, not being really out there in some way or too sexual um, or too provocative, standing out too much. Um, what else? Okay. You couldn't hear it? Oh, he, he just said I was doing fine. <laughs> um, okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.